Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Welcome, Hackaroos. It's Mike Murphy here with the great Robert Gibbs on Hacks on Tap. This has been a grim time in American politics, but we're, we're after uh, uh, last week, we're going to put on our, our hack hats here and step back into looking at the election, where we are, what some of the awful developments we've had in our country in the last few weeks uh, may do about it. Are we on the same trajectory? Will it change? We're going to talk about all that. And to do it, we reached into our old profile, uh, not old profile, but our old pro file of old pros this is i'm i'm I've, i heard there's a contest for the uh, most awkward introduction so i'm making my play with this uh, chunky monster here i think you're going to win without a contest but go ahead <laughs> well I'm, I'm landing it now we, we got a friend of ours a first timer on the podcast but a long timer on the smart side of the equation in american politics so i'm going to let brother gibbs introduce our fine guest here to help us navigate these great questions a good fellow democrat and hopefully uh, i can make this more concise murphy than than you just did though i was trying to follow the old profile thing you're slipping <laughs> yeah exactly Get here to I it. Go. Let, let us introduce some this is going to be a lot of fun and i've wanted uh to hear this guest on our podcast for a really long time None other than Doug Sosnick, who spent 40 years uh, in American politics, most notably six years as senior advisor to President Bill Clinton in the White House. And uh, if you um, if you have read any of his memos over the last 10 years, you know that Washington waits with bated breath and reads them and soaks them up uh, voraciously. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming on. Okay, and we're going to plug those memos on how to get them a, a little later. But let me let me set up the discussion with a, a penetrating and powerful insight. It seems to me that the Democrats are in real political trouble. Now, I know this is a shocking thing to say, but the midterm is classically bad for a new president with inflation raging, the gas and grocery issue, uh, as consultants often call it, uh, the polling looking pretty bad. There's no question the Democrats are in a tough spot coming into the midterms, but the election is not tomorrow. So my question for you guys is, first, will the gun tragedy we just had, and even more tragically, not the first, uh, will that issue come to life in American politics? Could it change the trajectory of the midterms? And also uh, the highly likely uh, situation that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade. So you've got two big political energy sources that are going to are gonna get mixed in here. So what's your big picture take? And, and why don't you start us off, Doug? Well, you're right. I mean, just taking a step back. Uh, by uh, historical standards since World War II, the, with two exceptions, the party and the newly elected president lost seats in the midterm. So there's every reason to have expected going into the cycle that Democrats would probably take a beating. The other uh, historical, recent, relatively recent historical trend uh, is that the country has been voting for change. They voted against whoever's in power now for seven out of the last eight election cycles. And, and so before you even start with how things have been going for the Democrats since Biden took office, there was every reason to believe um, that they were in for a tough election cycle. Then you take a look at where we stand today uh, in, in the context of, of your question. Uh, I think, you know, you don't know for sure uh, about Roe versus Wade. It's probably one of the biggest Supreme Court rulings in most people's lifetimes. Um, the whole issue about gun violence is, is really at an unprecedented level. So, I would be reticent to rule anything out. H however, having said that, my general sense from all my years of politics is that these big historical trends, the sort of zeitgeist of where a country is six months out for election, um, that tends more than anything else to determine the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm, I, I'm skeptical that the basic contours of this election are going to change between now and yeah, I mean, I think if you look at where Biden's approval has been for, gosh, almost six months, it feels like somewhere in the mid to low 40s, it hasn't really budged. Uh, I don't know, as you said, Doug, that there's really a lot on the horizon that can move it. It's governed a lot by inflation, which 
uh, continues to be strong. Gas prices, I think, just this weekend hit uh, a new record. Uh, those prices, as we've talked about on this podcast, are displayed for every person to see as they drive by. And so, you know, I, I don't I don't know that there is a lot in the uh, in the magic eight ball that you can shake up and and hope for a largely different outcome. I think it's interesting, Doug, that you mentioned even if Biden had done better and 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 if some of these crises hadn't popped up, history teaches us that he was swimming against the current really from the get go, right? Well, that's absolutely true. There's, there's um there's one other there's there are two elements. One is probably vastly underreported on one element, which I'm sure you saw Robert in the White House. Uh, despite, you know, the power of the presidency and the most powerful man in the world, there are real limits on what a president can do to change the basic contours of an economy. And there certainly are limits in terms of how much things can change and how fast. Um, but the other element that I think is, is not thought of enough that it really, I think, relates to the problems of Biden and the Democrats is, is that Biden is the first president, person elected president since 1988 when George H.W. Bush was elected. He's the first president elected since then that really was elected without a political base. And as bad as things got for Obama, uh, he had a political base that generally stood by him. And to the extent that Biden had a political base in getting elected president, the base of that support was being against Trump. Uh, and so the fact that Biden doesn't have a that base, that reservoir of goodwill is going to sit by him through thick and thin, I think is 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 part of what has contributed to the fact that right now his polling numbers are actually lower than Trump's. Which is yeah, that's saying something. Let me let me ask you uh, uh, an instinct I have about Biden, and you guys can tell me if I'm being unfair because there's plenty of good qualities. But as a politician, in the first eight months or so of the administration. On the domestic communication side, it looked to me like a guy trying to play piano wearing a catcher's mitt. He just didn't seem to be able to hit the messaging notes very well. Build Back Better, I always joke, it sounds like a chain of chiropractors to me. There wasn't a bumper sticker in it. It was really big. I think he got marginalized and at least in perception, made to look weak by the vocal, you know, left-wing faction of the House Democrats. Terrible for a president, real kryptonite. Am I being unfair or is he just – has there been an opportunity cost where – other than the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is something I think they could have made a bigger meal out of, um, there's been a lot of fumbling on domestic policy messaging, which did not make a bad situation any better. Or is that unfair? It's more the big forces. It just seems that the margins to me, they, 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 they've kind of blown their domestic communication, uh, policy communication. Well, look, first of all, Mike, you, you know, you've worked in politics and you've worked outside of politics. And one of the things that's, I think, uh, what I found to be true in politics and when doing my work outside of politics is that you got to have a narrative. You got to tell a story. And there is no narrative to this presidency. There is no story to this presidency. And, you know, back in when I was in the Clinton White House, we had no narrative for the first two years. We just did a bunch of stuff. And we thought, you know, we did good stuff and people will appreciate it and they'll vote for Democrats. Well, they didn't know what to make of what we did. And it took us uh, a while um, to come up with a a story that was digestible to the American public. And I think that, uh, I think, you know, Robert, you guys inherited, you know, at the time, the biggest mess since World War II. Um, But, you know, it took you guys two and a half, three years, I think, to really come up with a story. And one of the challenges, and you, I watched you guys struggle with this with Obama, and you can watch in real time Biden struggle with it now. Uh, and I can go back and remember how Reagan actually dealt with it effectively. And that is, when you're president, you need a story, and you need to talk about the future, and you need to do it in an aspirational way. But you also, when you talk about the future, you have to talk about it in a way that rings true to people in terms of their daily lives. And I remember yeah. Biden and you got Obama was struggling uh, mm. early on about things were getting better. And I finally, you guys went through me, Robert, you and I called you green blades of grass message, oh, which was, which was, <laughs> and, and, and so. Still wake up at night in cold sweats thinking yeah. of the 
the the green shoots. Good God! But, but anyway, so <laughs> so the chal- the challenge is how how can you be positive? Because you're yeah. not positive at telling your story. Why shouldn't anybody else be positive? But how right. how can you strike that balance? And and what Reagan did was he basically stayed the course, talked about tax cuts, reducing government, uh, peace through strength. And he just waited it out. It took about two and a half, three years before the economy turned around. So I think Biden has been challenged, has been, has not had a narrative uh, story since, since he took office. And I think they're obviously struggling mightily about trying to strike the right balance about reason for optimism in the future, but talking about it in a way that people can relate on a daily, in their day to day life. Doug, it's a great point, and I think I think there's a couple of things. You, 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 to your point, you have to have a theory of the case, and you have to prosecute that theory of the case. I, I think the challenge, particularly when you walk into that building, and I, I'm interested, you know, the examples that you've used, Obama, Biden, and Reagan, all struggled in the beginning because I think you you walk into that building and everything is coming at you at light speed. And if you fix something on Tuesday, don't worry, because Wednesday is going to bring a fresh hell of problems and things to deal with. And you do get lost telling that story because you're literally just dealing with what's coming across your desk every day. And I think what's interesting also about the examples that you used is I, I think each of those, and I know we'll get to this in a second, Mike, but each of those examples gains their footing also when that story includes telling it and posing it against an alternative of what the other party wants to do um, in both Reagan in Reagan's case and in Obama's case. And, uh, and I think that I'm not suggesting we have to play this thing out and wait until after the shellacking to get to that story. I, I but I think, I, I think as Biden used to say, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And I think uh, Democrats will benefit once Republicans take control of either the House and or the Senate uh, and an alternative is forced into that narrative. Yeah, every great story has to have conflict. That's the right. key to storytelling. The hero goes on a journey, faces obstacles, including often themselves. I don't care if it's the real housewives of purgatory or it's a presidency. And you know, that's what's missing. And what I do think about the road decision, particularly guns, is Biden has an opportunity now to lead a crusade. And I know the White House is like, oh, we can't have a big gun fight. We're going to lose it and look weak. You already look weak. Losing the right big crusade fight is a good story. But that requires him to call for a million people to march on D.C., it, 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 you know, to give people some some crusade he's the heroine to join against, as you say, Robert, an obstacle in an enemy and and something else, uh, and they just seem to be reluctant to do that kind of stuff. Just a small point, and uh, to Robert, what Robert just said. So I'm sure you guys have been late at night in a bar, and at some point someone says, "Well, what would have happened if Kennedy hadn't been assassinated? Or <laughs> what would have happened if you know to Johnson's presidency if he hadn't gone into Vietnam?" Right. Jeff well, Greenfield writes novels about this <laughs> this right. kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> but, but anyway, so. What would have happened at a Biden's presidency if Donald Trump hadn't screwed up the Senate races in Georgia and basically yeah. did, did right. the impossible? So what would have happened, to Robert's point, what would have happened if Republicans controlled the Senate, which is what everyone expected and they should have? I think it would have been a completely different presidency. Yeah, I think Biden still would have struggled because I think one of the challenges you know that, that he's dealing with is he ran on this idea, which I think voters – like, obviously, which is uniting the country. I just think they don't necessarily, well, I, I take that back. They do They do understand how hard it is. They see it every day. They see the arguments. And But I agree with you that there would have been a natural tension that Mike talked about that, that, that could have changed the narrative a bit. I, I, you know, yeah, I think it might have been good for Biden. Let me, just quickly, uh, right. one, he wouldn't have got FDRitis at the beginning which was a very bad path they went stumbling down. Two, right. he would have been able to triangulate against his kooks in the House a little bit. And the bipartisan infrastructure deal, I think he still probably could have gotten done. It would have been bigger. The expectations would have been a lot lower. But go ahead. Yeah. No, I think, and I, I think too, I mean, I said this a second ago, but I want to just underscore it is, I just think so much comes at you in the White House. And, you know, you've got to have somebody that 
pulls the 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 string a bit and and leads you back to telling that narrative because again I, you can get very focused on dealing with the everyday problems that compound themselves and like i said i think you know, there's an nbc story out today that biden's frustrated with with this same phenomenon right now which is it just doesn't seem like he catches a break but also you know one problem goes away and two more pop up and and i think it's just really hard to get yourself out of this what what's come across the desk what has what decision has to be made what bad thing is happening now uh to to tell that story plus to your point mike i think it's it is harder for Biden to communicate than it has been for many recent presidents. Uh, and I, I think the communications environment is not easy for him to navigate. And, and he's not a natural communicator and hasn't been for a long time. Most of the time you run for president and you say, if I get elected, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And that's normally what happens. So like Trump or don't like Trump, Trump did what he said he was going to do, but he got elected. Same with Obama in 08. Uh, how he governed in 2009. Same with, with W. Bush in terms of what he said in 2000 and how he started governing in 2001. So, right. so there was no real narrative. There was, for Biden in 2020, there was no, if I get elected, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, other than I'm not Trump. And, you know, I'm going to try to restore the office of the president and, and you know, bring us back into the world order. So he, he got elected without kind of a, any kind of mandate in terms of what he was going to do. Secondly, uh, uh, I've always been skeptical of the ability of United States senators to become chief executives. And yeah, I think you point. certainly saw some limits with Obama on that. And you certainly have seen that with Biden. And the last thing I'll say is, uh, I used to say before the Trump presidency that people would look back at the first two years of the Clinton White House as a model of what not to do. I think that with Trump, we no longer get the, the, the you know, we now have the silver, <laughs> the silver medal. You gladly pass um, that trophy along. But, yeah. but, but what, what we learned at, you know, by the third time or maybe definitely the fourth time around the track, same track, eight years, we learned it was basically very simple. And I'll give you a quick rule of thumb at the end There are really only three things that we focus on. What is our narrative? What is the story we're trying to tell? That's one. Second is we take every asset and resource to tell that story, whether it's the president, whether it's the staff, whether it's interviews, whether it's earned media, paid media, the cabinet, executive orders, scheduling, it's all dr driven in service of that narrative. And third thing is who are we trying to talk to? And that's right. all we do. And so I've worked as I know you guys have on a number of governor's rate, uh, offices and Senate uh, offices. I, I, can, I can do a very simple test and tell you what kind of operation they have. I go into an incumbent's office. This is something we learned in the White House. You give me the schedule for one month. Yeah, totally. I, I want to look backwards. I want to know how much was reactive, how much was proactive, and I want yeah. to know how that got on the schedule. You give me that, and I'll tell you how an operation runs. So for Robert's right, you're kind of like, a, you know, the White House, you're kind of like a hockey goalie trying to keep the puck out of the net. But, but the point is you need to have that narrative, and you need to be proactive, and you need to push everything else aside that you can or if you're stuck with stuff, then you try to either figure out how to get it into your narrative or you try to figure out how to deal with it and and have something else ready the next day to change the subject. Yeah, it's totally right. Uh, it's funny. Back yeah. in the day, Phil Graham from Texas, when he ran the Senate committee, used to he'd, he'd haul in the chiefs of staff who were up for reelection and terrify them all. And the first question was, how many events do you accept? And, the, you know, some guy answer well are we about 62 percent no say no to everything and create your schedule right so we used to have the scheduling meetings which i used to drive and it was all the incoming and so i would start with it with a stack and i'd say my goal is to turn down every single one of these requests right. totally and, totally and i remember one time i walked in and said is is bill clinton the prime minister of israel and I, they said well no why i said well you guys are proposing a jewish event five days in a row as our, yeah, as, right, our right. as our as our exactly. as our message as our message no yeah. no it's so true and that is one of the hardest things culturally to get because they you know in politics everybody wants to say yes but my brother-in-law's on the steering committee we got to go right. so right. what one other quick point to something doug said and then gives it's all yours yeah i, I just want to agree on the thing biden biden's real implicit promise was normalcy 
which is a hell of a hard thing to deliver in our crazy monkey fight politics we now have. And he hasn't delivered it. I don't think he has the power to. I think he tried, but that's left that vacuum that Doug's talking about, and it's a big problem. Normalcy and competency. Right, right. And, and, and Republicans know that. And, and that's why Mitch McConnell said at the beginning of the Obama administration, he was going to say no to everything because he knew that in that first few years, all that's going to end up laying at the feet of Barack Obama. They're going to blame him for nothing getting done, not Mitch McConnell. And so, you know, I think a lot of that's happened too with Biden. Doug, let me pose this question to you. Let's, let's suppose your phone rings right after this recording ends and it's Joe Biden. And he says, Doug, I was uh, listening in on the podcast as you all were recording it here in the Situation Room. No, no, he'd say I was listening in on the talkie, but go (laughs) ahead, keep going. Can't resist. Sorry, Joe. Yeah, I was going to say, come on, keep it above board here. Uh, And he heard what you just said, and he said, Doug, how do I get this back on track? What do I need to do with my schedule, with my narrative, with my message? What would you propose to him if you were walking him through what you just walked our listeners through? Because it's fascinating. Well, I think I would say to him, first of all, you're president of the United States, you have a four-year term. So, you know, you got to do what you got to do between now and November to to both try to be supportive of candidates um, and also, you know, make them feel like you care. But putting all that aside, you're president of the United States and your focus should be on where are we going to get, where's the country going to be at the end of your four-year term? And so you need to have a clear narrative a clear, you know, what, what is your story you're trying to tell? You need to build your entire White House operation around telling that story. And you got to hope that in the next 12 to 18 months, people start feeling things are better. Yeah. And I tell them, look, you're fighting Putin. Find something domestic to fight. Fighting Joe Biden against a do nothing Republican Congress. Make this thing simple and make it a battle. Right. 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 You know, when you're in the White House, the things aren't going well, that things start going worse. And, all the, yes. all, all the phone calls come in about you idiots. You need to do, you know, you need to do this and, and you need to do that. Um, and it, and it, it's really a, um, it's really a, a, a really negative cycle. Uh, that's really hard to break. Um, but I think that, um, uh, there, there, there's another element that they need to work on to answer your question. When I'd say to them, uh, so first and foremost, you got to have that positive narrative. You got to tell that story. You got to do it every day. Republicans are much better at thinking visually than Democrats. So a lot of it is not just a print story in the paper or whatever. It's what pictures are you using? And, but but they're, they've been very slow at identifying problems and dealing with them in a rapid, responsive way. So company, the long-term narrative challenge is this sort of short-term, uh, you know, uh, emergency units. And so, you know, I think inflation is probably the most grievous example where, you know, they talked about transitory inflation for a year or whatever it was. But, you know, you look at the supply chain problems and how slow they were out of the market on that, the infant formula and how long that was a problem before they got out of the market on that, gas prices. So I think you really need to, to have that long-term proactive plan, but you've got to accompany that with these short-term crises. And, and you got to at least do one of two things. One is you got to show the public you're on it and you're trying to make yep. it better. And the other is hopefully you make it better. But I think the absence of those two pieces, the proactive long-term narrative with the reactive short-term crises are the two areas that I would tell Biden to focus on. Yeah, they are oddly not fast on their feet. Jim, just one point that I'd make. I mean, I thought this was weird. And again, it was in the NBC story this morning. It wasn't until very recently that that Joe Biden got his first briefing on the infant formula stuff, and and I was um, to to your point, Doug. I mean, you've got to anticipate and understand and and see that kind of stuff coming, and and because once it once it lands inside of that building, it's way too late, right? It's it, it that just means all the easy decisions have been made, and all the bad decisions are coming your way. And you got to have somebody in this case at the agencies that is uh, that's pulling the, the 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 fire alarm so so that you can do something about it. You know, we learned what H.W. Bush was like. You know, slow on the mark on hurricanes. So, I mean, our whole thing going into the White House after that was you got to focus on things people care about, and whether it's directly or indirectly. There are millions of people that were either directly or indirectly affected by the baby formula 
problem uh, or people that know people that were affected. Uh, every American was affected by gas prices. And so while you have to fight a lot to try to get pe the attention of the public on things and get them to care about it, Right. There, are these, there are these other things that they care about, whether you're there or not. And f to, to not be on top of that immediately, it's not right. only a missed opportunity, but it's putting you, you know, on your heels. Well, yeah. And, and for a guy that, was, that ran on competence, ran on, hey, we can make government work again, uh, it's, it's double poison. There's so many optical things you can do, too, if you're fast. You know, you can send your Brainiac cabinet members, Raimundo and Buttigieg, out to inspect stuff. You can announce you're going to release 500 National Guard trucks uh, to rush supplies. You can do it all with great pictures. You know, when in doubt, be the, you know, large and in charge president and, and make cabinet people go out there and get on television. But right. have a bias for action, not a bias for careful deliberation. And there, there are two ways, when you're in the White it's true anywhere, tick in the White House. When a problem comes up, you have one of two solutions. You either have a real solution or you come out and do process. Right, totally. And so process is not as good as solution, but process is, at least shows you care, you're on it. We had a, we had with Clinton, things got really bad with him after the 94 midterms. So we had one thing going for us and one thing we didn't have going for us. What we had going for us was they still thought he cared and he was on their side. So we hadn't lost that, but we had lost the fact they didn't think he was competent and was able to do anything about it. And when you when they no longer think they're on, you're on their side, then you really are in trouble. Yeah, no, no. Then you're relevant to their lives, and they start looking for the most powerful word in advertising: new. You know, <laughs> change. And I tell you, yeah. when I knew we were in trouble, I knew when we were really in trouble in the White House was when I was walking through an airport lobby, and Clinton was on giving a speech, and not a single person was watching the television. Right. Right. Yeah. You're in the rearview mirror. Terrible place to be in presidential politics. It's like the old trial lawyer thing. When you have the facts, argue the facts. When you have the law, argue the law. When you don't, pound the table. And and Biden's got to learn how to pound the table. Well, look here, something big is coming to Washington. It'll inflame the beltway, which means it'll inflame cable TV news, which means it'll inflame primary voters, uh, which is the January 6th hearings, which are going to be televised here in June. And there's going to be a lot of bad stuff there. But does that have anything to do with the price of gas in Sterling Heights, Michigan? Will it grab the voters who count in the midterms, or will it be one of these D.C. Uh, slappy fights from the point of view? And I know what the stakes are. I'm irate about it. I, you know, I want show trials and jail time for uh, some of these complicit people in, in you know, a seditious move. But out there in the real world where they're trying to figure out how to pay here in California, over $6 gas and expensive groceries and stopping buying proteins, will they give a damn about that? Or is that just another Washington show with the parties calling names at each other, which is what I think it probably will be. But what do you guys think? Will it have an impact on the midterms in a meaningful way outside working up the Democratic base in outrage and working up the Republican base and it's all an unfair conspiracy? And where's the hearings on and An FIDA or Anna FIDA or whatever the hell they're called? Um, I mean, my guess is that you're right on this, Murphy, that in a world of immense polarization, and I think this is why you see a number of the Republicans, even though they'll turn around, they'll turn around if they have investigative powers and demand that people testify in front of Congress and, and act on subpoenas and whatnot. I think the reason that they're trying to push all this stuff off is they realize they can get most people to look at this through a partisan lens and go into their natural corners. Um, I think maybe if you're at one of the Democratic committees, you hope this confluence of if if Republicans don't do anything on guns, if Republicans or when the Supreme Court overturns Roe and then you see some of the horrors of January 6th, the sixth committee, what they bring forward, you you hope that energizes the base a bit more to get out there. But I don't know that it's going to in any way trump, um, no pun intended, um, gas prices or inflation, or as you said, the, the cost of the scarcity of baby formula and the cost of gas. I think there are three kinds of voters. One third of them are kind of crazy left and one third are crazy right. And the final third what I call civilians. And they think that crazy left and this crazy right are both crazy. 
And so I think for the hearings, it's mostly a Rorschach test for the two thirds that are left or right. And then for the final third, I think that just has nothing to do with their life. But to yeah. the extent, if you take, if you take the hearings and you take uh Roe, uh, you know, you really deal with a narrow slice of people that matter, you know, is, you know, f f only five states voted for the president who got elected in 2016 and 2020, uh, only five states, all the 40, all 45 of the others all voted the same way. Um, and you take those five states plus Nevada, which Democrats nearly won in this time, um, those six states, um, uh, all the, all the marginal toss up competitive Senate races are in those six states. And so in those six states, uh, that third group, the civilians, they could matter on the margins, particularly mm -hmm. in, in suburban rich Nevada and suburban rich Arizona. So for the vast majority of the country, they've made their minds up politically. 94 out of 100 senators of the same party and the candidate of the president who carried their state in 2020. So when you start talking about elections and impact, it's a very narrow slice of states that matter. And it's a very narrow slice of voters in those states, uh, both in terms of A, turnout, and then B, for the extent they're swing voters, how do these events impact them? Yeah, that that is a good transition to the candidate factor because I've been on the good and bad side of these wave elections where, okay, we're going to punish Biden for the economy. And in a House race, boy, you got to be entrenched if you're in any kind of competitive district, not that we have that many anymore. In a governor's race, you got room to operate because you got your own brand and you got your own issue set. You got kind of a longer leash to get away from the national party. Senate races are somewhere in the middle because they're higher profile, but still, when in doubt, if a 10-foot wall of water's coming, your five-foot wall doesn't save you. Uh, this year, we're going to have a couple Senate races that are very key, and I think if I were spinning for the Democrats, I'd say we got some crazy-ass Republican candidates we can put the focus on and escape the full wave. You know, they're going to make that argument about Herschel Walker as his performance as a candidate may not be the equivalent of on the football field and controversy in his past. You've got likely but not certain. We're waiting on the recall in Pennsylvania, but you got Dr. Oz. In the governor's race, you got a legitimate Republican clown running. How much do you guys buy that theory that the weak candidates in the Senate race give Democrats some room for hope. I, I tend to discount it. I think we're in the kind of wave election that a bag of cement can win. But uh, what do you think? It depends. You know, if you, if you take a wave election and and put it in hurricane sort of like, is it a is it a, a six or an eight or a 10 or a 12? There was a great quote by uh, John Sears after the 1980 presidential election where, like, where not only did Reagan win in a landslide, but the Republicans picked up, I think, like 11 seats or something. And he said, he said at the end, after he says, well, hell, if we'd known we we're going to win all those races, we would have run real people. And, <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and almost all of them, almost all of them, I think, except for Grassley, they all lost six years later right, uh, right, in a normal right. environment. So, um, so I think there, if you have a wave of, I mean, the goal, look, the goal, if you're a Democratic candidate in a, an election like this is to try to not have a national election, but try to have a, 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 an election against two people. And right. so the weaker your opponent, the more likely you are to possibly withstand mm -hmm. the wave. Um, and we have, you know, it, uh, uh, we'll see whether or not the record falls, Robert, but the 2010 midterms was the biggest loss of a presidential party since World War II. That was w the weren't biggest. you in charge of that, Robert, at the White House? I seem to recall <laughs> yeah. it. You were the you know, architect, that was, right? Uh, that was Axelrod, who uh, yeah. couldn't be yeah. with us today. Yeah. But, right. uh, it was on your day off, as Bob <laughs> Dole used to say yeah. about Watergate when he was yeah. head of the RNC. It happened right. on my night off. I will say this. I blame I blame it not 2010 on, but I blame the, the amount of loss on Rom um, because Rom had done so well in 2006 and 2008 in the Democratic uh, congressional campaign committee that we owned a lot of property in Congress in 2009 and right. 2010 that we easily shed in 2010. You, you in were leasing, not buying there. Renting. Yeah, we were, we were definitely, uh, we had a confluence of events that gives us the trophy of the biggest, uh, yeah. But, but two things on that. The first is one thing that the Democrats did do in 2020 to help mitigate our 22 lots is, is we lost 15 house seats. 
um, in 2020 when no one thought we were going to lose any house seats. And Crazy right. like a fox. Right, right. So, right. You so, lured us into a false sense of yeah, security so there, a masterful we, trap. We've already, we've already raised our floor. But the second point, going back to Robert's 2010 midterm, was, was uh, there were a couple Senate races, including Harry Reid, yeah, where no dis despite the worst midterm election since World War II, they were able to win. And the only reason they won was the weakness of their opponent. And I think, I, th I can't remember whether, the, I think the witch in Delaware ran that year. Yeah. Christine um, O'Donnell ran in Delaware. Yeah. Sharon Engel ran yeah. in, right. in, in Nevada against, against Senator Reed. And, you know, to your point, and I, and look, I, this is Mitch McConnell has said this, right? This, you know, he, he this is what keeps him up at night. Um, and I do believe to your point, Murphy, that this can be, you're not going to win a bunch of seats like this, but can you hold two seats because of this? Could you hold a Georgia and a Pennsylvania because of this? You could. Now, as you said, there's 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 likely a big wave coming, but you're going to have big, sophisticated campaigns with tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, if you get the right message, you can prosecute it in a way that I think can get you out of being swamped in this wave. It, it's not again. It's not going to happen a bunch of them, but yeah, Biden could only close it a little bit. That that sure could help make those a difference. Well, let's zoom in on one because the Senate could come down to what Pennsylvania voters in the end decide to think about Fetterman. Because I, I see a fork in the Fetterman road. You know, my lefty friends uh, who are astute say. You know, you're underestimating this guy. People hate politics. It's a wrong track election. He's got a unique blue collar appeal. He looks different. He speaks different. He could be the new formula for Rust Belt states. Don't underestimate this guy. Connor Lamb sure did in the primary and got clobbered, et cetera, et cetera. The other point of view, if you go talk to Jeff Rowe uh, in the probably not going to make it McCormick campaign or other Republican consultants are like, this Fetterman guy is a gift that even Oz could beat because he's a left winger. He, there's an issue we can go create doubts about him in base communities of color because when he was mayor, he got in that thing where he went out and leveled a gun at the first black guy he could find after hearing there was a robbing robber or something going on. You know, blah, blah, blah. This guy is an easy target for us. We're going to paint him into into a terrible lefty, dangerous corner, and uh, thank God Connor Lamb didn't win. Where Fetterman lands, I think, will decide a lot of if Pennsylvania is really competitive or not, which could tilt the Senate. So do we do we have odds on that? I, I don't discount that Fetterman could be the Uncola and catch on theory. My instincts are it's going to be more the traditional thing where he's going to be vulnerable. But I don't know. It's a weird year. Crazy times demand crazy candidates. We proved that in 16. I just don't know. What Do you guys have an instinct about it or we got to see more campaign? To me, this is fascinating. And I think it's I think it's what you just said. We have to see a little bit more because I, I think there's, I, you know, look, <laughs> I can't wrap my head around it, to be 100 percent honest with you. And I'm dying to see some general election polling uh, on exactly this, because I, 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 you know, I part of it, I can see here is a guy. And if you read the stories around him, you know, reporters always seem to find people at his events that have never been to a political event, have no desire to be at a political event, but he has brought them to a political event and gotten them interested. He's won counties that Trump has won in Pennsylvania. So I do think there is some crossover appeal. The question is, you know, can he play in a in, in a place like Philadelphia in the suburbs of Pittsburgh? Can he can he convince them that he's going to be a senator? Uh, yeah. and, and I think, but I think this, what's going to be interesting to our last question is if you pair this with Dr. Oz, do, are you comparing somebody who's, you, you're basically finding two somewhat unconventional people and therefore it may be that Fetterman can get away in this election with being more unconventional because they don't exactly see Dr. Oz as they would uh, a Dave McCormick or yeah. somebody else. Vote for the better oddball. Well, I think if uh, <laughs> if McCormick is the nominee or were the nominee, I think we probably wouldn't be having that discussion because he would be sort of perfectly yeah. built. He'd put the regular Republican thing together. He'd shed right. the, the phony right. Trump Chewbacca suit a little bit. and Though so, he'll have to deal with that governor candidate going nuts every day. Well, and, I think you know. that's there are a couple of things though that uh, that are um, uh, wild cards here. First of all, Fetterman's health—it's not clear. Good you know, point. What we're dealing with here, 
And secondly, that governor's race is, you know, that that guy is not some wallflower. And it's going to be yeah, he's going to be a news machine, yeah. no doubt and, about and, it. And if I were running the campaign uh, uh, for Fetterman, I'd be I'd try to make the governor the big issue in the Senate race and make yeah. Oz every day weigh in on that. Um, I, yeah. What, what I would say is a general matter, though, if you fear as a Democrat that this is a big wave election, I, I don't think we're in like desperation country like. John McCain was in 2008 when he picked Sarah Palin because it was like, what the fuck? You know, what do I, you know, what do I have to lose? I don't think yeah, we're- If that, I'm going to lose, let's do it in an interesting yeah. way. Yeah, our yeah. fourth fourth, fourth down in 25. Um, so uh, I, I, I do think though we are, I don't know where we're going to come out. I do think though it's a, it's, a, it's a potentially grim enough cycle that there's probably less risk uh, for someone like Fetterman who is a unicorn who at least has the ability to make this a micro race between two people and not just make this a macro referendum to save the Democratic Party and Joe Biden's presidency. Yeah, he's got right. kind of a I hate politics even more than you do vibe, which, you know, I don't know. I think there is a little rocket fuel there, but uh, you're right if it were uh, if it were a more regular Republican. But Oz may give him that opening. I still doubt it'll be enough. I think about it. Let's look at your questions slightly differently. Had they nominated, had Democrats nominated Connor Lamb, I actually think he would be less likely to get elected because I think they're going to, he's going to just look like every other politician. And in a wave election, I think those are the politicians that tend to lose first. I, I don't, I just don't think he's going to be in enough difference to seem out of the ordinary in a way that Fetterman certainly will. And I think, you know, this is heresy for, you know, the consultant class. Unless elections are really close, the big stuff matters and nothing else matters. Yeah, it's true. Fundraising doesn't matter. The TV ad, the mail piece, the scheduling. And if you're in a wave election environment, it, those big forces right. are, are going to determine the outcome, not, the, not any of this other stuff. It's only yeah. when the election is razor thin. Does all that other right. stuff matter? Gravity is hard to compete with. It's the don't fight the Fed rule of Wall Street. But the one thing about Fetterman, though, if they're really good at it, they might create with him something interesting enough to stand out from the wave and at least give him, yeah. give him an oar to paddle with, which in yeah. this environment is a win. All right, real quick, because we have a jumbo extra special mailbag we have to get to, long promised. But I want to finish on kind of a juicy topic, but we have to be quick. So let, let's get out our crystal ball. I'm putting on my Kreskin glasses here. If the Democrats do have the bad midterm and they don't ameliorate it and the candidate thing doesn't make a difference and they lose the House, which is highly likely, and the Senate, what will the next six months from November into next summer be like inside the Democratic Party? And I'll give you two scenarios. Scenario one is the, the Gibbs for president primary Biden movement breaks out. There'll be Biden will be in lame duck world and in our new course internet era it won't be under the surface people will be saying it the the process press will obsessed with who's going to run against him and the Kamala's hopeless blah 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 or will the republicans go into mad dog mode two minutes into taking majority control start talking about impeaching and hunter biden and the metric system and the backlash against that start to unite the democratic grassroots against biden because he'll be the target of it and he's the champion they got what, what you, both of you just take, take a shot at your crystal ball, what the world will feel like if they do have a really bad midterm. Just, I want to say, I want to start with the Gibbs for president uh, thing. And if, if, if nominated, uh, I will not run. I think the likelihood, well, first of all, I think inside the democratic party, we're going to spend six months with the progressive side, blaming the moderates for killing build back better and the moderates blaming the progressives for putting out a $3 trillion bill that nobody knew what it was about and could vote for. Um, and there'll be a lot of food fighting inside of the Democratic Party, which we've seen over the course of the last few elections anyway. Um, I, I think, though, to your second scenario, I don't think Republicans are going to be able to hold themselves back, largely because it's what's animated Republicans right now. I mean, that you know, they're already talking about impeaching Biden. They're already talking about um you, you know, all of these investigations, I don't think one, I don't think they'll be able to help themselves. And two, I don't think particularly on the House side, the leadership 
is strong enough to hold anybody in the crazy caucus back from do, from being crazy. I, I don't I don't Kevin McCarthy is not strong enough a leader to set an agenda. McConnell may be in the Senate, but I don't think that I think you'll be running against the House uh, in 2023 and 2024. No, that it matters. But if that scenario happens, then Biden will be the fifth president in a row that's lost control of the House and Senate while they're a president. Um, so what we'll go through after the election as Democrats is what I call the who lost Vietnam discussion. And we'll spend, as Robert said, six months talking about why we lost. I think it should be noted, though, that the progressives will be stronger within the House and Senate caucuses after the uh, elections because it's the moderates in marginal districts who all got defeated. Or didn't run, yeah. Yeah, so I think that Republicans are going to go through their mad dog phase. I think they're, a bunch of them are going to run for president. They're not going to wait for Trump. Um, I think the Democrats uh, are going to not wait for Biden. I think you're going to see a bunch of people, you know, positioning publicly, not just privately, uh, to run, whether he does or not. Um, in, in the last, so I think it's going to be on like a thousand flowers bloom everywhere. The last two things I'll say is history showed that midterms are not uh, uh, in any shape or form predictors of the following election. These two big landslides, recent landslides you saw with relatively recent, 94 when Democrats got routed in, in 2010, again, when Democrats got routed. In both cases, the Democrats won the White House two years later. And, you know, if you look at the most recent NBC poll, Republicans are like by 14 points underwater of favorability, unfavorability. Mm -hmm. So this is not like a mandate for Republicans. And, and the last thing I'll just say quickly is I, we haven't gotten, I guess we're not probably going to get to it today on Roe, uh, uh, but I can tell you, while I'm not sure what the impact is going to be on Roe in the midterms, I can tell you, assuming that they do a final uh, verdict or, or ruling that's reflected the leak, just like healthcare was a noose around Democrats in 2010 and 2012, it became a winning issue over time for Democrats into the decade. Roe versus Wade and guns, where by two to one Republicans on the wrong side of the country, those are going to be bigger and bigger issues every year. And I'm quite confident it will be a substantially bigger issue in 2024 than 2022. I think it'll be a bigger issue in 2026 and 2024. Yeah, I think that's an astute take, you know, back to that 3X structure and the narrative thing we opened with. The midterms are the second act, and they set the hero up for a great comeback. That's the one upside of defeats. That narrative always has to be moving up or down. No, no, I'll just add one point, and, and it, 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 it swims off of what Doug said, right? In 1994, Clinton gets overwhelmed in the elections, wins pretty comfortably uh, in 1996. Uh, sorry to bring that up, Murphy. Um, and the same thing with Barack Obama in 2010 and 2012. I, and I think part of that's because each of those each of those presidents began to tell to Doug's first point a better narrative, and they had an alternative with which to pivot off of in a way that they didn't before. Both those both those Democratic presidents controlled Congress, and they got a little overwhelmed by it. And uh, once they had an alternative and could run against the mad dog you're talking about, Murphy, uh, they regained their footing. All right, singers, do your stuff. Okay, it's mailbag time. If you have a question for the hacks, you email it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com. Hacksontap at gmail.com. And while you're typing on that computer, don't forget to subscribe to the Hacks on Tap weekly email newsletter, totally free, full, chock full of the bloviating of Robert Gibbs and the insightful commentary of yours truly. <laughs> we do a lot of funny stuff we don't talk about on the podcast. Totally free. Get it by email. Go to hacksontap.bulletin.com. That is hacksontap. which is internet talk for period, dot bulletin. Dot com. Okay, we promised you, good folks, a jumbo mailbag. So we're going to do some extra questions, but we're going to go quick, 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 because we're running out of time here. All right, our first question for the legendary 2010 Robert Gibbs, <laughs> your new moniker here on the show. It's a good question from Michael, not me. Are the Iowa caucuses gone for good? Who benefits if another state goes first? If you had to pick, who would you pick to go first? And Doug, if you want to chime in after Robert on this one too, you uh, you're a student of that calendar. 
Yeah, it's a it's a great question. We did this on, uh, and you know, the listener should describe should subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, we did a little of this, and we'll probably revisit it. I do think I think we did a contest, right? Name your state. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say I do think that. First of all, I want to I want to start by saying I have nothing but good feelings, as you can imagine, about Iowa. Uh, not just because we won, though that's a large part of it. You, you know, you, you've got to run a different type of campaign. You've got to go talk to voters one on one. You got to go talk to those voters six or eight times one on one. But I think the Democratic Party is going to a get away from caucuses, and b I think the pressure on a place like Iowa for its lack of diversity likely means that it is not part of the first four. I think New Hampshire will go first. They have a state law stating their primary has to go first. I think Nevada uh, and South Carolina will be there. And then I think you pick some place, a North Carolina, a Pennsylvania, a Michigan, uh, a swing state, uh, a Midwestern state, a, a Sunbelt state, um, somewhere that allows you uh, to build an organization in a place you've got to go back and win in the fall. First of all, it, it's made no sense that Iowa was first. Democrats have been looking for 20 years to find an excuse. They have the courage to knock it out. Uh, it's not representative of the party. Caucuses make no sense. It's equivalent of like the Republicans making Washington state their first primary state. Uh, it makes no sense on a whole host of reasons uh, for them to be where they are in line. And the mistakes they made in 2020 gave the Democrats an opportunity they've been looking for for decades to bump them. Uh, Doug, this is a good one for you. The race for New York's 10th congressional district is getting increasingly chaotic with former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, Congressman Mondaire Jones, and former Congresswoman Brooklyn DA Comptroller Elizabeth Holtzman among the high-profile contenders jumping in. Any hunch on who has the leg up on this one? Well, the short answer is I have no idea. The longer answer is <laughs> this will be really interesting. I, I, I don't know of anybody, including Donald Trump, that's more unpopular than Bill de Blasio. So we'll see whether he can defy the laws of political gravity by getting elected to Congress when he's been so roundly and thoroughly disliked uh, during his time as mayor. I think that is an astute analysis. I, <laughs> I don't know the other two candidates, but I'm for them. Okay, I know you got to go, Doug. There's important Democratic political work to be done. Your bat phone's ringing. We want to thank you. And do me a favor, plug where people can get your newsletter that you put out about. Well, not newsletters, unfair. Your occasional memo. analysis memo, because they're must-read. Well, thank you. I actually, I, I don't really put them out systematically. Usually Politico or Axios or The Post or someone will run it. But basically, you can Google, I guess Google is a best way to find them. That sounds good. Thank you so much for being on Hacks on Tap. See you guys. Okay. We thank Doug, but uh, Brother Gibbs and I are going to run through a few more questions here because we've been behind. I think, Gibbs, you've got one for me. Yes. This also comes from Mike. I don't know if you're just, are you just emailing and asking yourself uh, questions? We, we are a legendary podcast among the mics. That's what it is. <laughs> they're, they're the cutting well, edge. Well, one of the many mics asks, what are Evan McMullen's chances to win in Utah? Well, first disclosure, Evan's a friend of mine, and I'm doing a little volunteering. I do hope to send an invoice occasionally if we raise money uh, for the super PAC supporting him in the Utah Senate race. So Mike Lee is the Republican incumbent. He's got bad numbers. Uh, he's in trouble, but it is a Republican state. The Democrats in Utah, who know it's very uphill and they almost never win, decided not to nominate a candidate. And Evan McMullen, who's a former clandestine services CIA agent, served in Afghanistan and other places and ran independently for president against Donald Trump, former Republican staffer on the Hill, uh, kind of a rule of law conservative, got about 20 percent of the vote against Trump in Utah before, is running. So it is a competitive race. Lee is ahead. But I think if you model the race, Evan is within single digits. And this is a race Democrats ought to wake up to because uh, we're in the fundraising stage now. And that's going to determine whether or not Evan uh, is going to be able to prosecute the case against Mike Lee, who is vulnerable and has two primary challenges, by the way, even within the, the Republican Party. The key for Evan is to run a hybrid campaign where Democrats agree with him on rule of law, but he is center right on most fiscal issues. Uh, and, and can put an interesting enough with Mike Lee coalition together. So that is one, particularly in this year where they need everything they can. Uh, 
I think Democrats should take a look at uh, Evan McMullen as being the kind of uh, patriot, even though they might not agree with him on all the issues, that they ought to take a hard look at supporting in Utah. You can check out his website to learn more. You're on a roll, Murphy, so let me give you one more. Scott asks, what lines did Madison Cawthorn cross to lose his seat that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates or the rest of the MAGA caucus hasn't? Since bad behavior is celebrated in the House these days, I'm curious about why the GOP turned on Cawthorn so fast when his antics don't seem all that unique. Well, yeah, so he lost his primary uh, to a Republican state senator, one of a ton of candidates running against him. And I think what was different in that race was, one, a lot of the state Republican establishment went out against him because he was so far out of line and so self-destructive and just so embarrassing to the state. So there was a big Republican effort against him, and State Senator Edwards was a totally acceptable conservative candidate, a ready replacement there. Also, it was an accessible congressional district. Now, what do I mean by that? Not all congressional districts are created equal. That district is very accessible, which means efficient. Local television that's affordable in Asheville. Uh, a way to get famous without needing millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. So we had legit local trouble. The strongest opponent had a base as a state senator and a lot of support coming down, including Senator Tom Tillis. So the formula was better there and the district was easier to go make a case against him. Marjorie Taylor Greene represents essentially, and there are some good people there, so don't let me be too cruel here, but I, I don't like her, uh, a bunch of carpet mills in North Georgia, which is dominated by very expensive Atlanta TV, a less accessible congressional district for a challenger. Challenger also didn't have an elected base, wasn't a well-known mayor or former congressman or state senator. So she started with less. And it was much harder to get famous. And the Georgia political infrastructure wasn't helping her. They were too busy with the big primary. Uh, and so she just didn't have the opportunity to let the, set the world on fire. Gates uh, is well-established in his district and also didn't have a strong challenger with a base. But there's a, there's a good story we're talking about in the newsletter because we can't link here in Hex on Tap. In the Washington Post, you can probably Google it a few days ago, which made an underrepresented thing that should be paid attention to. Several of the Republican open seats, like Mo Brooks in Alabama, who's now in a Senate runoff, he'll probably lose, were replaced. And did another kook like Mo Brooks win that? No, regular Republican conservative did. Nobody Gibbs would like on most issues, but not a not a screaming crazy. So in some of and there are other districts like that. So in some of these places, the kookier people running to get promoted were replaced by less kooky people, which is an interesting signal in the overall noise. Yeah, and I think too, just to add that uh, on the Tom Tillis thing, I think Tom Tillis got tired of dealing with uh, Madison Cawthorn, not because, not just because he was embarrassing, but because he was pretty critical of Tom Tillis of not being conservative enough. And uh, I think Tillis had had enough of it and uh, found a good candidate and backed him. So, Robert, you're a communications wizard, uh, and Sylvan has a question that I think is perfect for you. Our friends, the reliable commies over at Pod Save America, seem to think it's a bad Careful. idea. For, no, they're <laughs> friends of mine, too. It's a bad I, – I tease. I tease the Pod Save yeah. people. I worked, I did, I worked I with all those guys. I know you did. I know you did. In 2010, we heard all about it. All right. All right. I'm done already. Uh, the, the boys at Pod Save America seem to think it's a bad, bad, bad idea for Democrats to go on – cue the Dracula music, Fox News, because it gives legitimacy to an unethical propaganda outlet. They also seem to think it doesn't really help Democrats. Now, I remember Pete Buttigieg made a bit of a meal during the primaries of going on on the theory of grab their microphone and, and, you know, try to get converts. Where do you stand as a communicator on that? Boycott Fox for all the bad they do or, or, or try to invade them with a Trojan horse to make converts? Well, look, I, 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 I've been on the other side of this and fighting this inside the, the Obama campaign at one point and even parts of the White House. I don't subscribe to this idea that somehow if you go on there, you're going to reach a all these Fox will tell you, oh, we have all these Democrats watch. I don't I don't really buy that at all. Uh, I don't think it's a way of, you know, peeling off disaffected Democrats or whatever the mumbo jumbo the marketing department is telling you. 
I'd say the only reason to go on, and one of the reasons that I've been on a couple of times, go on with an agenda. As you said, what 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 Pete did was take the fight to them. Don't just play their game where you're catching their arrows. Catch their arrows and shoot them back at them. Look, if if you want to, um, maybe one of the most fun times I've had doing an interview, Google uh, on the YouTube, Robert Gibbs and Sean Hannity after one of the presidential debates. And uh, I switched. You, we got assigned, you know, different uh, d- different interviews after the presidential debate. And uh, I had read a story that that Sean uh, had had put on TV the Sunday night before the debate that basically said, you know, it was just it was all the crazy stuff that Sean was running in 2008. And I, I went on there and he put somebody on TV. The center of his documentary was a guy who had been disbarred. Uh, he had been thrown out of courts. He had he was deeply anti-Semitic. Uh, and, you know, Hannity's big thing was, well, you can judge Barack Obama by these people that he's come into contact with in his life. And I said to Sean, I went on and said, Sean, how long have you been anti-Semitic? And he went, he looked at me and says, what are you talking about? And I said, well, if I follow the reasoning of you with Barack Obama, you just centered an entire hour-long show on Sunday night around a guy who's anti-Semitic. And I'm going to judge you by the company you keep. And therefore, I believe you're anti-Semitic. And I'm just wondering how long have you been anti-Semitic? And I didn't play the game. I went on there with 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 a with an agenda. I was going to push back on the bullshit of Fox News and Sean Hannity. And I'm going to tell you, it was more fun than I've ever had in an interview. So go on, but go on with an agenda, not to play their game, but to play your game. I have one more for you because you're feisty now. And then I'll feisty. do one more question. We'll wrap up this jumble mailbag. This is from Eric. I live in Texas. And I'm always surprised at how Texas Democrats go for an in-your-face progressive style when campaigning in this italics, so I'll, I'll do it in a salute to the great Norm MacDonald, in one of the reddest states in the union. Think of Beto interrupting Greg Abbott in the middle of his press conference. Maybe this is part of a classic Texas attitude of being a, quote, fighter, but I wonder what approach you hacks would recommend they take if you were advising them. More fight? more moderation. So what do you think, Gibbs? Should should Beto go chain himself to Abbott's car next, or is that <laughs> counterproductive? What Beto did, I think, was deeply personal. I think he has watched it up close in El Paso with a shooting. He's listened to Abbott talk about, well, we really have to do something about mental health, even as the state ranks 50th in helping people with mental health. Uh, and I think Beto had just had enough and and reacted in, in a pretty visceral way. I don't know whether it works or not, to be 100% honest with you, because I think the feelings around that, the events were still pretty raw. But I, I, I think the idea of, of and I've, I've run some, I've been involved in some races in Texas, and I don't think being a, a bit more moderate is the way to go. I, I don't think you have to. I don't think Bernie Sanders is going to win Texas, but I think you've got to draw some deep contrasts. And I don't think you can just be sort of Democratic light and expect to win those races because you've got to get people excited. Beto almost won uh, in twenty eighteen. Because he excited the electorate. Uh, I think it's going to be tough this time just based on the political environment that we just spent an hour or so talking about. But I I think you've got to punch and I think you've got to be pretty feisty. Just quickly, I I think it was heartfelt. But I think he's already a sinking ship in Texas. So it was kind of irrelevant, although it'll, it'll gin up the voters he already has. All right. Last one, Murphy. Simon asks, Democrats seem to get more celebrity endorsements, particularly out of Hollywood. Do do these endorsements actually help a candidate or they just fuel for sly Mike Murphy acolytes to run ads about elitist out of touch Democrats? Can any of the hacks remember any celebrity endorsements? That was particularly impactful in a race. I just want to point out that now, now you've now you're emailing in under the pseudonym of Simon. Yeah, no, it's not me because I can't spell acolytes. But uh, brilliant question, Simon. So you got to distinguish between political celebrities and celebrity celebrities. Celebrities who are like famous movie stars can raise attention to issues. Clooney was a master of that. Others, they go to the Hill, they put on serious glasses, they they testify. I think Clooney's a listener, so I'm going to give George a pass on any of that because I've seen him in action. He does have serious opinions about serious stuff. But in candidate endorsements, they're far less important. They can help raise money. 
They can attract, you know, rally crowds, but they don't persuade people. People make their own choices about politics. They don't really want to know what Carrot Top thinks about who ought to be president of the United States. Now, political celebrities, in general, endorsements are highly overrated. But in the old days, if Ted Kennedy would come out for you in a Democratic primary uh, or other people who are popular with a segment of the of the electorate, either Republican or Democrat, a Trump endorsement in a Republican primary, they can have some real power. But generally, famous celebrity endorsements, other than the narrow niche of using them to raise money, don't really work that well in candidate politics. Uh, they do work well to raise the salience and media attention for issues. Do you agree on that, Gibzo? I do for the most part. I will say Oprah Winfrey was a good get for us in 2007. Yeah, that's a good point. And, um, but, but partly because she so rarely got involved and obviously Oprah has an amazing amount of appeal throughout the spectrum of, of America based on just having been in everyone's living room for so long. But I will say this, if, if Oprah had endorsed somebody every two years, it wouldn't have been a big deal. It was a big deal that she wanted to get involved in this race, um, and and I do think it was uh, I do think it was impactful. Plus, it was uh, it was uh, easy, e- a lot easier to pack very big ballrooms and big big stadiums with uh, with Oprah. But you didn't get her in 2010, right? She was wise enough to stay away. All right, I can't resist the callback joke. Poor Gibbs. Why did I apologize for bringing up Robert Dole in uh, 1996 when I've now I've now taken I don't know probably seven incoming ICBMs on 2010? Fair enough, fair enough. I'll never remember that election night with uh, God. I love Bob Dole saying, "Well, we lost, but this was no 2010." Okay. <laughs> So with that, we're going to wrap up this somewhat chunky episode, but we wanted to get to those mailbag questions we didn't yeah. get. Gibbs, great to chat with you as always. Great to chat with you. And thanks to uh, to Doug. I, Doug is is really, as you as listeners can tell, really smart. Have been excited to have him on for a while and hear about the mechanics of uh, of of the Clinton White House and how they got things back on track. And uh, he was brilliant. Yeah, they ought to pull them into the Biden operation. Wouldn't hurt. Okay, thank you, Hackaroos. We will be back next week with some combination of Axelrod, Gibbs, and Murphy. 